0: Hi, crime fans. This is Maureen, and I just want to take a minute to tell you about a great event that's going to be happening here in Portland, Maine on April 22nd, and that's the Maine Crime Wave, where you'll get a chance to meet Maine crime writers and mystery writers hear about what we do, hear about writing in general, get a lunch, and a lot of other cool stuff. You can find out all about it on the website for the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. It's at the University of Southern Maine's Glickman Library, so there's plenty of parking. And the night before on Friday, Tess Gerritsen will be awarded the first annual Maine Crime Master Award, which is pretty cool. I'm on one of the panels, not that that should influence anyone. We look forward to seeing you. And now for today's episode of Crime and Stuff.
1: Maureen Milliken, And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you didn't have anything better to do. Yes, that's what it is. So, what number is this? You usually tell me. I think it's our 17th. 17. Right? I'm so excited. I don't know. I can't remember. I know. It's so hard to count. Math is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Math is hard. But,
0: tonight, I'm going to do a story on... Well, why didn't I just get into it? Okay, I don't think we have do, do we have any updates or anything? I don't think so. I can't think of any. I can't think of any. Okay, often when a single murder becomes national news it pisses people off. Why is this murder more important than all the other thousands that no one pays attention to? Lots of times it seems like it's because it's a pretty young white girl and so the national press is just unfairly focused on that. Martha Moxley was a pretty young white girl. She had long blonde hair and blue eyes, a sunny smile, Anyone who was a teenager in the 1970s knew this girl and liked her. You look at that photo yeah. of her, and it, it looks like it's right out of our high school yearbook. She was bludgeoned to death, then stabbed through the neck with the Ugh. broken shaft of a golf club in her front yard in an exclusive-gated, ultra-rich neighborhood of Greenwich, Connecticut, October 30, 1975. In 2002, 37 years after she was killed, Michael Skakel, who was a 15-year-old neighbor at the time of the murder, was convicted. And seemingly, in all those intervening years, as books were written, TV reality shows filmed, it may have seemed like the story of the sunny blonde girl killed in her own front yard was getting unneeded attention, while nothing really happened on the case. It's hard to remember that there wasn't a lot of attention in 1975, before the 24-hour news cycle, court TV, Nancy Grace, the internet, and everything else That drives our interest in true crime (laughs) these days. And
1: podcasts. And podcasts.
0: But as time has passed in the intervening 46-plus years since Martha was killed, it's become obvious that it's always been more than the story about the sunny blonde girl who everyone liked being bludgeoned to death, then stabbed through the neck with a golf club. It's been more than the story of how her shattered family, Mother Dorothy, Brother John, and Father David, struggled for justice to... Despite the fact that, particularly Dorothy, is cited as the reason many have for pushing the resolution. Is Dorothy still alive? Yeah, she is. She's 84. In fact, it seems like the victim was quickly a side issue. This is a decades-long tale of the privilege of the uber-rich in a powerful name, the sensibilities of those same rich folks and their desperate need to keep up appearances, police kowtowing to that even though they don't think they did, It's also a tale of battling writers as a group of authors in at least one case, I use that term very loosely, squabbled and backbit to get out books on the case when it came back into focus two decades after it happened, in some instances affecting the investigation. It's a story of how rumor and innuendo can both hurt and help a stalled case. It has ties to the shameful William Kennedy Smith rape case Mm. and even the O.J. Simpson trial. It shone the light on a brutal, abuse-centered main school for the worst of the worst teenagers, most, at least early on in the school's history from rich and privileged families. It was a reflection so bright that the school was finally forced to close in 2011. And it shows how police perceptions of psychological truths and lack of recognition of them and the attempts or lack of attempt of middle-aged male police investigators and writers, by the way, to get into the head of a 15-year-old girl can push an investigation the wrong way. It's a story of how criminal investigation has changed so much in 40 years that if Martha had been killed in 2015 instead of 1975, it probably would have been solved within the week, if not the next day. Mm -hmm. And it once again shines a mirror on us, on how we'd rather believe the old a black guy did it theory than follow the most obvious storyline that the rich white guy did it. Mm. It should have ended when Skakel was convicted in 2002, but now Skakel waits outside of prison, by the way, even though his parole was not granted in 2012. while well, the Connecticut Supreme Court, which upheld his conviction in December, decides to hear an appeal of that, and his influential cousin Bobby Kennedy Jr. crosses the country, flogging a book published last fall that says Skakel didn't do it. But let's go back to the start, October 1975, when things were still clear and there was a sunny blonde girl who lived in an exclusive gated community with neighbors who included some of the richest families in America. October thirtieth was mischief night in Greenwich, Connecticut, the night before Halloween, when kids would go out in egg houses, toilet paper trees, ring doorbells and run away and other shenanigans. Stuff we did like every so night. Like <laughs> yeah. Now
1: I've never yeah. liked egging houses. No, no I, it's and... hard to get the stuff out yeah. of oh, man.
0: Michael Skakel later said in an unpublished memoir that it was his favorite night of the year. And it's a little creepy that he would point that out given what happened on Mischief yeah. Night uh, in 1975.
1: Do you know when this unpublished memoir yeah, was it, written? Yes. Oh, well, that, is that a spoiler? It's no. not really a spoiler, but it's... But um, right, he wrote it as an adult. He wrote it well, in duh. Yeah. In no, the he 90s. wrote it He didn't really write
0: it. He made a bunch of recordings, and a ghostwriter oh, was going to okay. write it before he got subpoenaed. But it was hmm. after Michael Kennedy died in a ski
1: accident oh, yeah, in, 90, yeah. what was yeah. that, 1993. Uh, yeah. In any case. Those Kennedys die every few years. I know. Oh, that's a horrible joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, you
0: know, whatever. The Skakels the Moxley's neighbors, had more money than they knew what to do with from the family business, the Great Lakes Carbon Corp. Let's just take the default position that everyone in the grand Bellhaven neighborhood in 1975 was rich and white, so I don't have to keep saying it. Okay. But aside from race and money, the Moxley and Skakel families couldn't have been more different. The Moxleys had moved to Bellhaven 18 months before from Piedmont, California. Though David and Dorothy were originally from the Midwest, Martha was a quintessential California girl and the boys in her new East Coast school and neighborhood really dug that. I her. bet they did. She was out of sight. David, who died in 1988, was a stoic, focused man who worked long hours for the accounting firm Touche-Ross. And Dorothy was a homemaker. John, Martha's brother, was a couple years older. The two went to Greenwich High School, unlike most of the kids in the neighborhood who went to private schools. Hmm. Both Moxley kids were studious, smart, popular, hardworking, and by all accounts, nice. The Skakels were a motherless brood of full-fledged or aspiring alcoholics. Their dad, Rushton, was a genial, dim-witted, alcohol-marinated good guy to friends, but a terror to his kids. Hmm. A one-time nanny, who was long gone from the house by the time the murder happened, told a journalist a couple years ago that there was no discipline in the house. The kids, Tommy and Michael were about five and three at the time she worked there, would kick and hit her when she tried to discipline them, and the parents didn't care. Rushton Skakel's longtime lawyer and one-time best friend, Tom Sheridan, told another journalist who spent decades covering the case that Rushton never should have had kids. Once Ann Skakel, the mom, died of cancer in 1973, the family fell apart. Rushton spent a lot of time away from home recreating. He liked rich guy hunting, hmm. which is opposed to the kind of hunting most of us are familiar with. You know, you go for big game. You go oh, you go pay 50000 to yeah, kill a lion. Yeah, shit. Or on business tricks. His kids, daughter Julie, who was 18 in 1975 and the reluctant de facto mother.
1: Lucky and girl. Boys rushed and boys, Rushden Oh, junior, it was all boys and just her, just right? Just her, yeah. right. Lucky girl. And the, and the
0: um, five oldest kids were all nine months apart. Uh, so it was Irish quintuplets. Oh, I mean, geez. not even Irish twins. God. So Julie was 18. Rushton Jr. was 19. Tommy was 17. John, 16. Michael, 15. Younger boys, David and Stephen, whose age were never really clear. I read two books to do most of my research on this. Stephen, the youngest, was nine when the murder happened. I'm not sure how old David was. He wasn't a whole lot older than Stephen.
1: Tommy, I wonder if her mother died.
0: Yeah, no shit. She died of cancer, I
1: think. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the
0: dad, it was one of those deals where the dad wouldn't let them see her when she was dying. and Except for when they had to go in and say the rosary for an hour every oh, night. Jesus. Bullshit like that. But Tommy... The 17-year-old had, during a fight with his sister in the car as a little kid, fallen out and gotten a head injury. Uh, Uh, He was about four years old. And after that, he was prone to rages so violent that his father had to sit on him sometimes uh, and pull him down. Michael was also prone to outbursts of misbehavior. Former friends and others tell stories of him doing things like luring birds to the yard with bread and then shooting uh, them, or trying to beat squirrels and chipmunks with golf clubs. There are even some stories of him actually beating squirrels or chipmunks to death with golf clubs. One of the authors I read speculates it it would be hard to do that because squirrels and chipmunks are so quick. But I want to put it past him. On top of it, by the time Martha was murdered and she and he were both 15, he was an alcoholic and a drug user. Michael and Tommy didn't agree on much. They fought constantly, often drawing blood. But one thing they both had in common was they had crushes on Martha. Isn't that sweet?
1: Nice.
0: Yeah. Martha, according to diaries made available to investigators over the years, was a typical teenage girl. She had a boyfriend, but also wrote a lot about other boys she found cute or who paid attention to her. The male authors I read in researching this, as well as the police, all middle-aged men from what I could tell <laughs> from all the books, I mean, and this was in the 70s, frequently referred to her as, quote, boy crazy, uh. flirtatious, and other sexually tinged terms. I look at her as a typical 15-year-old yeah. girl. And whatever these little sexual, you know, spins they put on things that were totally not relevant to the fact they she was They were projecting. Murder. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I read. There was one who I mean, talked about how break. she was better developed than her friends. And then there was one story a family friend told about how they came over to visit, and this was shortly before her murder, and the woman was wearing a mink coat, and Martha took her coat to go hang it up, and her dad asked her to go get him a cigar, so she kind of waltzed back into the room wearing the mink coat with the cigar in her mouth. And I picture her doing kind of a Rachel yeah. Marx type thing. But, of course, one of the book authors had to say it was provocative and oh, sexual. give me a You know, break. even at 15, you know, and it's like, fuck. Oh, God.
1: So, you know, you know. She, yeah, Middling no, men. I mean, if they read my diary when I was that age, I'm oh, sure shit, yeah. be things about boys. Oh, I know.
0: And there was also a newcomer in the neighborhood that night. Ooh. Ken Littleton was the latest in a series of male tutors rushed and hired your Yeah, nannies to stay in the house and watch the kids, particularly Tommy and Michael during his frequent absences. Well, that's why he got
1: a man. To Rushton like sit was having on a
0: lot of trouble dealing with the fact that his wife Ann was no longer there. Well, that's sad, but he also is. Come on,
1: you got a lot of money, buddy. He could have hired like 3 nannies to. And well, they did have a nanny. The they had a nanny, an Irish Irish nanny.
0: And a cook and a chauffeur. Oh, yeah, I'm sure a I mean, they a of servants. fucking yeah, rich. They you should wealthy. see the house. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the issues mm-hmm. here. I know people mm-hmm. think I, or people probably think that I focus on wealth a lot when I talk on this podcast. But it seems like a lot of the stories we do, wealthy people are treated differently. Well, there has a... And they behave a,
1: differently. Yeah. I mean, in most of the stories we do, it's not like we just randomly pick stuff. So they're interesting because of whatever dynamic is part of it, and sometimes it's well. And this is certainly a
0: story as we go on where you'll see that that the wealth and the family name had a lot to do with the fact that we're still talking about this, you know, um, 42. 42. Yeah, yeah, thank you. 42 years after it happened. You'd think I could just like subtract my age. I was was almost
1: the same age as Martha, she was eight months old. But anyway. You could have been her sister. Oh, I could you were have been if I was really rich.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were more Skakel without any money. Yes. No, we weren't. We weren't. I shouldn't say that. So as I said, Ken Littleton was the latest in a series of male tutors rushed and hired yearly to stay in the house and watch <laughs> the kids, particularly
1: Tommy and Michael. But how much he paid them. $400 a month
0: and room oh, and board.
1: Oh, free room and board. So
0: mm-hmm. back then that's
1: not bad. 1975.
0: Yeah. yeah. That night, that was Ken's first night there, a mischief night. Littleton took the kids, along with a friend of Julie's, Andrea Shakespeare, whose father was a bigwig, I think, at CBS, the nanny, Jimmy Tyrion, one of their cousins, also from Greenwich, and the entire brood, to the Bell Haven Club, where they were members, for dinner. Michael would later write, in his unpublished memoir, that he liked Littleton because Littleton didn't blink an eye when Michael, who was 15, ordered several drinks at that dinner. They got home around 9 p.m., and Littleton went to the master bedroom where he was staying to unpack and watch the movie The French Connection, which was on TV that yes. night. And not, neither of the books I read, but I think it was actually Mark Furman's book. And, yes, it's that Mark Furman. Yes. And we'll talk about him later. Yeah, okay. But he mentioned in his book, or his ghostwriter, rather, mentioned, because he did have a ghostwriter. Oh, writer. Mark Furman did? He did, yeah. Len Levitt, one of the books uh-huh. who wrote the book Conviction that I just read, mentions it frequently.
1: Ah. Uh, and I don't blame him because... I would, too. But,
0: anyway, in the Mark Furman book, A Murder in Greenwich, he does mention that back then, and you'll remember this, this is true, when something was on TV... Like, The French Connection, it was a big yeah. Oscar-winning movie. Everybody watched it. Yeah. You know, there was Because no, that's
1: when you were going to see it, right, unless that, you went to the movie theater. That's right. There I were mean, no cable channels. No. There
0: were no... You're
1: lucky to have, like, even if you were rich, you would have right. what? Maybe ten right. channels at the yeah, most. Because I mean, you you'd have VHF more, and UHF. Right, you and, didn't
0: get more channels just because you weren't rich. No. And it was the kind of thing where, remember, like the next day, everybody would go to we're, school
1: like, and West Side Story was on. West Side Story or Brian Song. Yeah. Remember oh, Brian yeah, yeah. song? <laughs> I know. Everybody uh, watched
0: that. Everybody was talking about yep. it. But, and I, we probably watched The French Connection that night. Gene Hackman. Because I was a big
1: Gene Hackman fan. Is Gene, he's still around. I love Gene I Hackman. Remember.
0: Way to put me on the spot. But in any case, Martha... Was running around the neighborhood with her friend Helen X, who lived next door to the Skagels, had another big family. They lived next door. Did and the
1: Skagels live across the street from them They lived, it was door?
0: across the street, but it was on the corner, so it was like their backyard or side yard faced the Moxley's house. Oh, okay, they okay. And they had a
1: huge, it. these yeah. were big, big, big houses on big lots. Lot. Yeah,
0: okay. So Martha wandered over with Helen Ix, who was her age and lived next door to the Skakels, and 11-year-old Jeff Byrne, who was a neighbor who lived on another street. They had been apparently, you know, going around the neighborhood doing their mischief. And the three of them and Michael got into the Skakels' Big Lincoln, which was parked in the driveway to listen to music on the tape deck. 8-track? I It doesn't say. It says cassettes, but I'm almost thinking it might have been 8-track in 1975.
1: I don't know. I don't
0: know. Helen and Jeff were in the back seat, and Michael and Martha were in the front. Then Tommy got in
1: hmm. and
0: sat on the other side of Martha in the front. Ugh. And some accounts say Helen and Jeff said the two were making out enough that they were embarrassed and got out of the car. In any case, all accounts say that Tommy kept putting his hand on Martha's thigh, and she mm. kept pushing it away. Yeah. Um, Some accounts say she was giggling and laughing as she did it. Others say she was uncomfortable. And as we know... Could be both. Right. Whether you're a teenage girl or a grown woman, when someone's making unwanted advances, and women have this thing where they don't want to seem mean or like bitches or whatever, especially back then, you
1: didn't make a big deal about it. No, and if you're uncomfortable, you'd probably be giggling. Yes. I mean, if you're 15 and you're uncomfortable, and there's other people around. So
0: around 920 or so, big brother Rush Jr. and brother John, who was in between age of Tommy and Michael, but apparently his quiet brother, (laughs) commandeered the car saying they had to drive Jimmy Tarion home. Jimmy, who Michael later described in the unpublished memoir as the captain of mayhem, (coughs) lived about 15 minutes away in an equally rich part of Greenwich known as the Backcountry, and they had a huge rambling house. Both of his parents were alcoholics, his mother and stepfather. His father in both of the books said in the exact same wording that his father drank himself to death on the day he was born.
1: I don't even know what that means. I don't either, but you know how you get so much to drink in
0: one day that you get don't?
1: a gig where I can be simultaneously wealthy and drunk all the time. I don't know and, you know like wealthy enough the that I can, are very different. That I can live in a big but I, I wouldn't, wouldn't want be I wouldn't want to be, but but like, apparently
0: this house was so big that the mom and stepfather could be in one part and the kids in another part, and nobody ever saw each other, and Michael liked it over there because people left him alone and but in any case. Tommy and Martha got out of the car, and Rush Jr., John, (laughs) Jimmy, got in the car to bring Jimmy home. And everyone later told police that Michael went, too. They were excited because apparently Monty Python, the TV show not the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, had just started being shown on TV, and Jimmy wanted them to come over and watch it. The simple fact that they claimed he went to would keep him from being looked at as a suspect by almost everyone in this case for nearly two decades, despite numerous red flags. It was an alibi that everybody just believed. They just believed, believed. it. Belthaven was a gated community. Besides that, police frequently patrolled it, and they also frequently hired a private security guard, as they did on mischief night. The private security guard, around the time all the kids were getting out of the car, and Rush and John and Jimmy and everybody were getting in it, saw a mob of kids in front of the Moxley's house on Walsh Lane, which was the name of the street, and kind of shooed them, told them to get home, and they all went running over to the Skagels. Jeff Byrne, who was one of those kids, started home around 930 he went through the Ix house, which was next to the Skakel's house, and up a wooded path that led to his home. And as he walked, he heard heavy footfalls coming toward him rapidly. He got really scared and freaked out and started running. He's the 11-year-old? He was the 11-year-old. It was that kind of night. He just heard steps pounding toward him through the woods. what night of the week was it? It was a Thursday. Oh, it was a Thursday, okay. And and as a matter of fact, the public school kids, of whom there were very few in the neighborhood, didn't have school the next day because there was a teacher's conference, but the private school kids did. The Skakels all went to, it was called the Brunswick School, which a lot of the kids went to. And Ken Littleton was actually a teacher and football coach. Oh, that's right. Yes. Okay. So sometime around that same time, Julie, about five minutes after the boys left, went to her car to drive her friend Andrea Shakespeare home. But when she got to the car, she realized she didn't have her keys. Andrea went up to the house to get them while Julie waited in the car. While waiting, Hmm. Julie saw someone flip by the car Tommy and Martha were talking by the side of the house. The younger Skakel boys were in bed, and Helen and Jeff had gone. Michael, get back here, Julie yelled, though she told police later she didn't see who it was and didn't know why she yelled that. Now, Michael supposedly had left 10 or 15 minutes before with his brothers. Dorothy Moxley, meantime, was upstairs in her house painting woodwork. It was a cold, dark night. She was a little, she just felt it was a very creepy, strange night. She was nervous about Martha being out even though Martha was 15. And at one point around 10, when Martha should have been coming home, she heard what she remembered later as agitated teenage boys' voices outside. Hmm. A commotion, she called it. And it sounded like it could have been coming from their yard. Their yard was really big with um, trees. She didn't check, though. It was mischief night. In her despair after her daughter's murder, she didn't even really remember it until she recalled it many years later under hypnosis. Hmm. She thought at the time maybe she should turn on the outside light and see what was going on, but then she realized Dorothy's bike was on the porch, and she didn't want some mischief revelers to see it and steal it, so she didn't go out and turn the light on. Around that same time, around 10 o'clock, Stephen, the youngest of the Skakel boys, was in bed, and he told a school friend the next day on the bus, and this was before Martha's body was discovered, and possibly Stephen didn't even know she was missing, that he heard a girl screaming around 10 o'clock the night before, his Mm. school friend told her mother, who told police after
1: Martha's body was found.
0: Another 15-year-old who lives on the street was outside with her dog and told police around that time she heard leaves rustling like someone was moving rapidly through the trees. Also around this time, the Skakel's Irish nanny called upstairs to Littleton to check that fracas outside, if you please. I'm not going to try to do Irish (laughs) girl. Littleton, who was still watching... ...who was watching the French Connection, Went downstairs and opened the door and looked outside. It was, again, a dark, cold, windy... And this very, was his
1: first night, right? And this was his first Great night. first day of work, mm, huh? Yeah,
0: no kidding. But doesn't see or hear anyone. But he, too, thought he heard rustling in the trees like someone was moving around in the trees. Hmm. I got spooked and went back inside, he later said. And, by the way, his is a very sad story. I of, know, yes. Um, his life was pretty much ruined. Neighbors later said, again, the night was very creepy, Robert Bjork... A New York City prosecutor let his dog out around 10, and it didn't come back right away as it usually did. He had to call and call it before it came running from the direction of where his property abutted the Moxley property. The Ix dog, a German shepherd, also started acting weird around 10, pacing the edge of the yard, growling and barking. Helen wanted to go out. Helen, the girl who was Martha's age, wanted to go out and see what was going on, but she was urged by someone else in the house not to, and the dog eventually came in or went... wherever it was supposed to go. Sheila McGuire, a good friend of Martha's who lives the next street over kind of behind the Moxley house, she got home around midnight from a Halloween party and Martha, the eternal optimist, had actually set Sheila up on a date with a guy and Sheila was more of a wallflower and felt the date went horribly and she was embarrassed and Couldn't wait to talk to Martha about it. But it was in the days before cell phones and stuff. And she got home around midnight, and she was locked out of her house. And she's from one of those big families where it's easy for the parents to lose track of who's home and who isn't. And I guess this happened frequently. She threw some pebbles at some windows to try to wake somebody up. Nobody got up. And she was getting cold, so she decided to go sit in her dad's car in the garage for a little while to... Warm up. She didn't turn the car on or anything, but it was warmer in the garage. When she was in there, she thought she heard a door to the back of the garage that goes into a shed creek, and then she thought she heard it close she was very freaked out yeah she later told writer Tim Dumas who wrote Greentown which was originally published yes, in 1998 I remember when that came out and that's I one of the. I saw him
1: oh yes I, he's from there right yes yeah yes, I saw him interviewed on one of those shows yeah and
0: that's one of the two books I read oh, okay I, I had read that book when it first came out but he's completely rewritten it Oh um, so it's interesting okay. but she later told him she really didn't usually get unnerved But she was that night. She got out of the car after she gathered her nerves. She kind of cowered in the car for a little bit. And she banged on the door of the house until her mom let her in. And Martha had a 10 p.m. curfew. When she didn't get home, Dorothy became more and more agitated. When son John came home a little after 11, she had him go out and check for Martha. John rolled his eyes, and he went out and took a cursory look around the empty yard and the street and came back in and told his mom he didn't see Martha anywhere and... Hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Aww,
1: he probably felt bad after. I think he,
0: everybody did. Well, not everybody, but the Moxley's <laughs> did. Yeah. After midnight, Dorothy was really agitated. By the way, her husband David was in Atlanta on a business trip. Um. And she began calling Martha's friends. Sheila McGuire was woken up at 2 by her mom and again at 4, asking if she knew where Martha might be. And Sheila thought, gee, maybe Martha actually had too much to drink or something. And had crashed somewhere, although it was very unlike Martha to do that. Never know. Dorothy called the Skakel home around 1.15 and again around 3 that morning after finding out from Helen Ix that Martha was last seen with Tommy. Julie woke up Tommy, who told his sister that he said goodnight to Martha around 9.30 and she headed across the yard home. Dorothy even called the Tarians at Julie's suggestion, though she couldn't imagine why Martha would be at the Tarians George Ann Terrian. Jimmy's mother looked around the house for her son but couldn't even find yeah. him in the house. Who knows where he was? At four AM, Dorothy finally called the police and they sent an officer over because
1: Greenwich doesn't have a lot of crime. Bell, what is the name of it? Bellhaven? Yeah, Bellhaven yeah. is the neighborhood. And yes, I I'm sure. I'm sure when that someone from there calls right. the if it was chief somebody takes him out of bed and says go the get the somebody fuck from over there. poor
0: town or other I side know. of the <laughs> tracksville or whatever the poor section of the town was, he probably wouldn't have gone. But he walked through the house with Dorothy. Um, there's a little poignant thing in Tim Dumas' book where they go to the cellar and it's all decorated because Martha was going to have a Halloween party the next oh, night and then decorated the cellar. No. And that's one reason Dorothy didn't think Martha would deliberately miss curfew or get into because, trouble. Yeah because she wasn't going to jeopardize this party she was going to throw that she was all excited about. He felt that there was something weird going on. He just had an instinct Mm -hmm. that there was something weird going on. So he called two other officers who drove around the Bellhaven streets looking for Martha. They didn't see her or anything else. And the first cop, the one who went to the house, his shift ended around 6 o'clock. He did a missing person report, even though it hadn't been 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Police speculated she could be a possible runaway, but Dorothy was certain she
1: wasn't. It just wasn't her. And I think mothers know... A lot of times... I mean, yeah, you would know. And a lot of times, they used to do that all the time. So John Moxley went out very
0: early in the morning again to look for his sister. As his mother was getting more and more upset, she didn't sleep. She fell asleep for a little while in a chair. She called her husband in Atlanta. John came home around 6. He hadn't found anything or any sign of his sister. Dorothy's friends began to come over to help her because she was so upset. And one mentioned that she kept walking into the kitchen to check the clock just because she was so... At 10 a.m., she went over to the Skakel's house, because, again, that's the last place Martha had been, and knocked on the door. And Michael answered the door, so I guess he had skipped school that day. Yeah. And he looked pale and as though he had just taken a shower. His hair was wet. He was, according to Tim Dumas, mute. But he was at home, and Dorothy... Wondered, again, if he had seen Martha or knew anything about it. He didn't say much, but indicated he didn't. They had a big camper in their driveway, so she wondered maybe Martha had too much to drink and went in there and fell asleep. And Michael kind of shrugged and went and opened the door, and they looked in, and she wasn't there. And he went back in the house, and she went home. He was a little more excitable with his sister and her friend. His sister had gone to school that day, and Andrea Shakespeare had, and they went to a Catholic girl's school. And they were both called out of school, sometime mid-morning or late morning that day and as they told to go home because the police would be there to talk to them at some point which they took their friggin' time but Michael came running out of the house and ran up to the car and said Martha's missing and I'm the last one me and Tommy are the last ones to uh-huh. saw her
1: Interesting that he
0: would say that. Yes, it is interesting. (laughs) Um, One thing about this, and it is one of the things that kind of puts a lot of Bobby Kennedy's defense of Michael right under the trash bin, is that Michael just couldn't fucking stop talking about it from the minute it happened and putting himself at the scene and that type of thing. Mm. Martha's body still hadn't been found. And Sheila McGuire, her friend who lived behind the Moxleys, decided... She was worried about Martha, too, and decided to go out and start looking around for her. And she was going to go, I think, over to Helen Nixon's house. So she was cutting through the <laughs> Moxley's yard. And under a big pine tree that had boughs that kind of bent down yeah. to the ground, she saw, this was about 12.45 in the afternoon at this point, a bundle of what she thought was camping stuff.
1: No. Um,
0: including what she thought at first was a pink egg crepe mattress. No. She went over to investigate, and there was Martha lying face down, her jeans and underpants pulled down. Her blonde hair was so full of blood that police later thought she was a redhead. Oh, my God. And Sheila and Shock ran to the Moxley house. That poor girl. Banging on the door and yelling, I found Martha, but she couldn't articulate what she found. And so one of the women went back with her, and Sheila couldn't make it all the way back. She kind of collapsed in the yard. And the woman went, and I, I can't remember, but I think the woman may have been a nurse or something. She put her hand on Martha's back and determined she was dead. Oh Meanwhile, there were a couple neighbors at the house and one who was on phone answering duty and said Julie Skakel called the house all morning long asking if Martha had come home yet, if Martha had come, come home yet, and they were actually getting a little tired of Julie calling all the time. That's she wasn't interesting. any special friend. Yes, it was interesting. So police later find the head and broken shaft of the golf club that beat Martha to death in a pool of blood they find another piece of the club broken into pieces they never find the end with the handle the part that was used to stab her through the neck she was beaten so hard with the golf club that it broke to pieces yes. and then whoever beat her then stabbed her through the neck with the club, stabbed her so forcefully, in fact, it went all the way through, and her blonde hair went through the hole and was sticking out oh. the other side of
1: the
0: oh. And I'm sorry to bring that up, but it's important later for a point okay. I make. So that's the only reason I'm being that's so gruesome. Like,
1: no, but that's okay.
0: The I mean, medical examiner happened. later concluded that she was not sexually assaulted, although there were criticisms of the medical examination mm. later by others. Though there were bruises on her thighs and groin area, as though someone had tried to open her legs but couldn't, and they determined at the time that her pulled-down jeans cut her legs from being open. I almost wonder if there was some kind of struggle. Yeah, I wonder um, She also too. had scrape marks on her face. It was later determined the assault started down on the driveway. She was hit in the head. She tried to run away. She fell. She was hit some more. And whoever finally beat her to death and then stabbed her through the neck, dragged her
1: Oh my under goodness. The and
0: dragged her face down. So... So her face got scraped.
1: Oh,
0: God. By the blood evidence on the ground, police determined she'd been first attacked on the Moxley's Oval Gravel driveway, then chased and attacked on the lawn near a willow tree. That's where she was beaten to death and possibly stabbed, or I don't know why I say possibly. I think they determined she was stabbed there. And part of the golf club was found in a pool of blood, the head nearby, another piece of shaft nearby. Drag marks and blood through the grass show where she was dragged underneath the big pine tree. Some accounts say she was dragged by the hair. And that's important later. Okay. I don't think she was. First of all, her legs... That would be difficult her, first to First of all, her arms were found stretched above her head, yeah. which makes me see she somebody dragging her. their Second of all, if she was dragged by her the leg, hair, by that her hair through the hole in her neck probably wouldn't have it's been... It's not, so not that easy, easy to her. drag
1: someone by the hair anyway. No. No. I mean, not that I've ever done it, but, but I But you'll like, see later why okay. Why that's important. I'll, I'll make a note Yes.
0: Of and, yeah, remind me if I don't mm-hmm. mention it, if I get... What about the hair? You were going to say something about the hair. Around 4 o'clock, the police finally called the state mobile police crime lab. Now, Greenwich hasn't had a murder in 20 years. Wow. And they're all tromping around the yard. They Mm. put some spotlights out because it's getting dark. And they finally called the mobile police crime lab at 4. And that was So, yeah, late October, so it's starting to... Right. Yeah. The initial theory was that some bad guy, probably a hitchhiker on Interstate 95, which is close by, snuck into the community... Found the golf club lying around because kids are always leaving and then attacked and killed Martha. Because that's what you do when you... Yeah, you go into a gated community and, you know, it had to be somebody from outside the community. Of course. But police discarded that very quickly, though they hated to because they couldn't believe anyone in Greenwich could do something so awful. people don't kill people. And they began focusing almost immediately on the Moxley's next-door neighbor, Ed Hammond. They had asked around the neighborhood, you know, if anybody had a drinking problem, if anybody (laughs) seemed to have emotional problems... Weirdly, nobody mentioned the Skagels
1: even though they terrorized. They must have known they were like wild kids, you know, like when you have those family. Oh, they did family. know.
0: They did know, but the neighborhood was closing ranks. It was more important for the neighborhood to maintain its reputation. Yeah. Especially
1: the Skagels were the richest ones also they were probably in denial. I mean, well, they probably thought, oh, those kids are wild, but they would never do that. That's Possibly. What, I mean. What
0: they thought was it's more important to maintain appearances. Yes. Especially because the Skagles were so rich and influential and cousins of the Kennedys. Yes. Rushton was the brother, I don't think I mentioned this, of Ethel Kennedy, Ethel, yes. who had been married to Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. People have to remember, I've seen Bobby Kennedy on TV saying, Bobby Kennedy Jr., on yes. TV saying, you know, we didn't even hang around with them. They were never at our house. We were never there. And that's true. In fact, the Skagles hated Bobby Kennedy Sr., they thought he was a little weaselly asshole. And there was a lot of friction. But I think what Bobby Kennedy Jr. doesn't understand is the cachet that name brought, yeah. especially back then. This was seven years after his father was killed, 12 yes. years after JFK was killed, and the Kennedy name was a powerful To powerful outside
1: name. people, it's a powerful... For him, right. it's anyone, part of his life, and he doesn't see it the way somebody... The way we would. Or the way we, anyone, or anybody, anybody anyone, would.
0: Right, and anyone related to them, or in their circle, especially to... People in a rich community who want to touch shoulders of power would be influenced by it. It was like last week when we talked about the two Rockefellers. The Rockefellers. Nobody yeah. seemed to really care what their relationship was no. to the Rockefeller family. They just, and it, and it was the same thing. The Kennedys were, I don't think I can express to people who were around back then how much
1: power that name carried yeah. in the 70s. Well, yeah. You know. I know. Love them or hate them, it carried. You yes, know. it did. For a long time it did, and it still it still does.
0: And so anyways, though, the neighbors quickly dropped a dime on Ed Hammond, who lived next door to the Moxleys. He was in his 20s. His father had recently died, and it had hit him hard. He had had a drinking problem for a while and was troubled, but he had recently started taking the drug Antabuse.
1: The one that used to
0: make you sick. Which makes do you people sick. do that anymore? I, I don't know. like the big there thing in the 70s. With it, but yeah. it was a big thing in the 70s. But right. he wasn't drinking. People had all these kind of apocryphal, anecdotal type stories about him, and people thought he was weird and he was quiet, you know. Mm-hmm. And so police he kept to himself. He kept to himself. <laughs> so police went over there and contrast this with what happened with the Skagels They didn't get a warrant, but they had his mother, um, you know, who owned the house, sign a thing of green to allow them to search the house and take whatever they want. And mm. we can talk to Matt about this sometime, but a warrant you have to get by a judge yes. and you have to show probable cause to search and go into somebody's yeah. house. At this time in Connecticut, you didn't have to get one. You could just have somebody sign a piece of paper
1: letting you, and then
0: go well, in. Well, they're and... giving
1: permission. I right. mean, she didn't have to give permission. No, she she didn't, but I think I'm when, sure pe- she police felt... are, when yeah. people are asking by the No, I mean, they still do. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah.
0: So they took his clothing. They took a lot of other things like condoms, cigarettes, and books. They went through the garbage. They um, went through the hampers. They went through the washing machine and dryer, the closets. Mm. And they read him his rights and took him down to the police station in a squad car to question him. They scraped his fingernails and took hair samples. They claimed that his clothes had blood stains on him. It later turned out to be food stains.
1: <laughs> um, he was home like all night. Like my, looking at my his mom <laughs> went out to
0: dinner with friends. I know. Too. His mom went out to dinner with friends, and so he was home alone and didn't have an alibi. Hmm. So police decided he was their guy for a while. They yes. also, since the last place Martha had been seen was the Skakel house, and the last person she had been seen with was 17-year-old Tommy Tommy. Skakel. Around three or so that afternoon, they went over to the Skakels. Dad Rushton was at the family land in Wyndham, New York, which is, I think, in the Catskills, hunting. Hmm. They didn't get a warrant for the Skakels either, but they were much less invasive. They talked to the kids. Some accounts say they took Tommy to the police station to question But um, neither Tim Dumas nor Len Levitt say that in their books. I doubt it. Uh, The kids tell him what happened the night before. The dinner, sitting in the car, going to the Tarians. Tommy didn't go to the Tarians. He said that he talked to Martha. She wanted to go out and do some stuff, but he had a paper to write for school. Yeah, sure. So, on Abe Lincoln. So he went back in (laughs) and he went and talked to Ken Littleton for a while. Went to his room, apparently. Went back around 1030 and talked to Ken Littleton some more. Ken was... Watching Washington French Connection. Yeah. These two actually unwittingly gave each other alibis, in a way.
1: Yeah.
0: And we spent the night in his room working on his Abraham Lincoln paper. Did they
1: see the paper?
0: Well, it turns out that nobody at his school had ever assigned an Abraham Lincoln paper. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Maybe he was just doing it for his own,
1: Edification. Yeah, yeah. He
0: wanted to know about Abe. Michael did tell police how Tommy kept putting his hand on Martha's thigh and she kept brushing it away, but they never put that in their official report, and it wasn't until almost 20 years later an investigator on the case talking to the original guys and one of the guys mentioned it and the investigator said, well, that wasn't in the report. And the other guy said, oh, gee, maybe we should have put it in. Yeah, no
1: shit, asshole.
0: So a lot of stuff like that happened. There was a lot of stuff that happened that night that police at the time just didn't seem to think was important. Because they just weren't looking at things the well, right. and they
1: Well, they it, like you said, though, there hadn't been many murders in that. How many crimes? I mean, right. They were used to... The how po- many crimes? The chief of police
0: had been a traffic control officer
1: mm-hmm. before he was made yeah. chief. Yeah. So
0: the golf club that had killed Martha was a Tony, T-O-N-N-E-Y, Pena, P-E-N-N-something. You'll read in some places Tony Pena, like the baseball player, and that wasn't what it was. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was... Not a common club. Yeah. And it was determined early on that the Skakel's mother Ann had had a set of those clubs. And that day, as the police were walking out of the house, they saw a storage bin, like maybe a big barrel or something, full of odd golf clubs. And then it was a four iron that was a Tony Peanut. And hmm. they just said, hmm, that's interesting, and kept walking.
1: Ugh.
0: They didn't take it. It turned out that Ann Skakel's name, too, was on a label on the handle of all her golf clubs. Hmm. Sunday they came back. The next day, the kids, at least some of them, went up to Wyndham to be with their dad for the weekend. So the police kind of left them alone, Mm. and then Sunday afternoon they went back to the house. They mentioned the golf clubs. By then they determined that the Skakels were possibly the only family in Greenwich that had that brand of golf club. I don't know how they determined that, if they asked at the country club or (laughs) whatever. It turned out after Ann Skakel died, they became Julie's clubs, and Julie had used them that summer but had kind of lost track. The police asked her, they took the one that they saw, the four-iron that they saw in the barrel, and they asked Julie where they were, and she said she'd look around, and she Mm. rushed in. Rushed in, Dad, who was home by the time, told him if the clubs turned up, they'd give them to the police, and um, she kind of looked around the house, and the police said, okay, you know, and that was the extent of that. The police don't treat the skagles the same way they treated Ed Hammond. For instance, instead of questioning Stephen, then Nine, the one who said he heard screams, They had rushed in the dad to it. Stephen had told a school friend, if you remember, and this was before Martha was found, and that made such an impression on him, he mentioned it on the school bus the next morning, that he had heard a girl screaming outside around 10 o'clock, and the girl told her mother. Well, police didn't question Stephen. They had rushed in the dad to it, and then he went back to police and reported that what Stephen actually heard was a girl laughing, and that was the end of that. No one ever asked Stephen about it again. Police later said they didn't treat the Skakels differently, and maybe they weren't aware they were doing it. But they obviously did, and a lot of it is perception. They just didn't believe that a rich, powerful family could have anything to do with it. I think a lot of it's class distinction, and it was easier for people to believe that either kind of an outsider type or somebody who wasn't the Skakels had done this, even though if you look at it objectively, that was the last place she was seen. It was their family's golf club that killed her. So you got wonder. And here's a quote from Greentown, Tim Dumas' book. The Skakels, for the moment, were offered every courtesy, and they, in turn, repaid the police in kind. They fed the police, talked to them, they were friendly. But in the coming months, as other leads didn't pan out, police began to wonder if Tommy Skakel had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But it was too late. So Rushton had hired lawyers who told oh, yeah. him and his family to shut up. The wagons had circled, Kennedy-style, and the police didn't push it. Police also felt the boys, though athletes and bigger than 5'2", 120-pound Martha, and filled with violent rage, didn't have the strength to commit such an attack. Despite psychiatric profiling of the killer, and I'll talk about this in a few minutes, that would make it likely to be one of the boys, police didn't buy that psychological profiling in 1975, or they didn't make the connection. And I've read several places that police and their neighbors... And the Skagels neighbors, as time went on, simply didn't believe the Skagels were smart enough to get away with murder. Dumas writes rich enough, but not smart enough. Yeah, I was going to say. But you looking, don't need at how, looking at how things unfolded, though, they didn't really have to be smart, did they? Mm-hmm. They bumbled around and circled the wagons, and the police laid off. It's not like they went through this big elaborate cover up. They just said, We're not talking no, yeah. to you, and the police okay. didn't push it. Yeah. Tommy was given two polygraphs one two days after the murder, and one a few days later. The first was inconclusive, the second he passed. John Skagel was, a few weeks later, given one, too. In fact, the police gave a lot of polygraphs. They loved polygraphs, loved, loved, loved them. Ed Hammond passed one in the weeks after the murder. John Moxley, Martha's brother, was given one December 2nd and passed. Dorothy Moxley was given one on December 17th and passed. Ken Littleton probably got more than anyone else and didn't pass one of them. He was polygraphed. Well, I
1: I can't imagine what you, not to say whether, you know, he did it or not, but can you imagine if your first night on the job, you're an outsider, some girl gets murdered. Well, there's
0: an art, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes, there's an art polygraphing, and an expert who looked at the case talked about the way the Greenwich police did it, and this may surprise you or may not, they just didn't do it right. But, you know who was never polygraphed? Michael? Little, right. Michael? Little Michael Little Michael Scakeel was wasn't never he well it's later found out that he was scheduled to take one. Len Levitt or Frank Garr, a later investigator, found a note on a napkin in the case file that said Michael was scheduled to take one but it was canceled, though it doesn't say why.
1: Hmm.
0: And one of the cops at the time who was asked speculated that um, Rushton probably asked them to not have Michael take one. And at the time, Michael had an alibi. He was at the Terrians Well, I guess
1: they could say no. Nobody was, right, he was
0: 15, and nobody was looking at Michael
1: as being involved. Yeah, they were focused more on Tommy or... or,
0: And and you'll find out, Ken Littleton. Police, anyway, have determined the murder took place around 10 because of all the big attention, and Michael was at the Tarian's. So that was a solid alibi, and he didn't do it. Police started to focus a little on Tommy, but the Skaggles had circled the wagon. They also, in November, did a background check on Ken Littleton, the tutor. In early January, police got permission from Rushton to get Tommy's psychological and medical records from his school, both his elementary school and the private school he went to. But before those could be handled over, Rushton, at the advice of his lawyer, withdraw withdrew his permission for them to get those. He also told police he'd hired a lawyer to represent Tommy. The lawyer, Manny Margolis, before the end of the month, tells police he's told the Skakels not to talk to them. And Manny Margolis got rich over the next few decades, keeping Mm. the police and the Skakels apart.
1: That's his job.
0: David Moxley, Martha's dad, was getting impatient with the lack of progress, so he took up a colleague's offer to get some outside help. This colleague had worked with the Detroit Homicide Squad on a consulting job It's not really clear to me how somebody at that firm, that accounting firm, would do that, but he did. Detroit at the time was dealing with between 600 and 700 homicides a year. My God. And as I mentioned earlier, Martha's was the first in Greenwich in 20 years. So in February 1976, police went to the school where Littleton worked, the Brunswick School, to get a statement from him, but Littleton wouldn't talk to them. Mm. He was under the impression they were trying to get the goods on Tommy, and he was trying to protect his kids. So he wouldn't talk to police. Little Um,
1: did he know. They also, that
0: month, in February 1976, took another shot at getting some info on Tommy, meeting with Skagel and his lawyers and the family priest, telling them they wanted to take some medical and psychological tests, but the lawyer told them, no, that's not going to happen. In March, though, it came out years later, the Skagels had Tommy tested under a false name. We'll find out about that a little later. Later there's many
1: twists and turns. Yes,
0: there are many. The Skakels had taken control of the case, and since they were a dead end, the investigative focus turned to Littleton, who was quickly falling apart. It turned out he he had serious psychological issues, which were just coming out then. How old was he, 24? In his early 20s, and, you know, that's usually when things like schizophrenia, bipolar. So he was showing signs that he was falling apart mentally, and he also started abusing substances. In the summer of 1976, which he spent on Nantucket, his behavior was so extreme and so different from the years before. He used to go to Nantucket to work for the summer, like many people, that it was very notable to friends and acquaintances that he was just out of control. He ended up getting arrested for burglary. He'd get trash at night and on his way home, steal lawn ornaments, and buried them in the yard. The cops had chased him out of the job at the Brunswick School. He had gotten a job nearby in New Canaan. They had gone there asking questions about him and chased him out of that job. He got a third teaching job and they did the same thing. They thought it was funny the cops did. Kenny just continued to fall apart. They would periodically give him polygraphs and things like that. He did not so they now the Greenwich cops weren't winning any prizes here and one thing they did and this didn't happen until the 90s but I want to mention it now is he ended up getting divorced. And when he was at the very rock bottom of his mental illness, they convinced his ex-wife, who he still loved and wanted to get back together with, to tell him that he had confessed to the murder. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, And
0: yeah. he hadn't. But she told him that during a like a drug-induced psychotic blackout, he had confessed to the murder. That. And the cops, this one Jack Solomon, who was an investigator for the state attorney's office and was focused on Littleton till the day Skakel was convicted... Figured that would push Littleton to confess. And this was like in 1991 or 92. So this is how long they yeah, badgered like this guy. Years. Instead of confessing, he said, I said that? And she's like, yeah, and, and so you did it? And he's like, no, I didn't do it. I don't know why I would say that. And But it got him very agitated. And they gave him a polygraph, which he again failed. Oh,
1: Jesus.
0: And they kind of convinced him that if he passed the polygraph, they'd never bother him again. But, he, you know... And he didn't find out till Skakel's trial that that had been a bit put on. In fact, when he testified at Skakel's trial in 2002, the defense badgered him about confessing, and he still didn't know he had never confessed, and the defense made it sound like he had confessed to it. And then so they put Jack Solomon, yeah, Mickey word. Sherman, yeah. and then they put Jack Solomon, the state investigator, on the stand, who said, yeah, Littleton confessed multiple times. And they took the investigator down and made him listen to all his tapes and go through all his notes, and it turned out Littleton had never confessed, and they put him back on the stand Monday, but the damage had been done. I mean, Skakel got convicted, Mm -hmm. but this is one of the things people now hang. Ken Littleton did it because he confessed, and he (laughs) never did. So that was going on. The Detroit consultant who, by the way, the Greenwich Cops did not appreciate getting
1: involved. Oh, I bet they didn't. He
0: looked at the case files, and he said that they had messed up in many ways.
1: No shit.
0: First of all, they should have immediately confiscated Tommy's clothes from the night before, and they never did. Again, nobody was looking at Michael. Yeah, they this, still was in, thought was this was telling. in, like, 76. This was yeah. six months after the murder. It turns out later that garbage men, days after the murder, found some clothes belonging to Michael. There was a label in them. It had a different kid's name, but it turned out at camp, he and this kid had traded clothes for some reason. Hmm. And his dungarees um, that were in the garbage that looked like they had blood all over them. Are you kidding they, me? The police took them at the time, but they have been lost. Over uh, years Before they could ever be, be tested. Fucking serious. The Detroit consultant who David Moxley got involved, as I said, noted that police did not immediately confiscate the clothing or shoes that Tommy wore the night of the murder so they could be tested for Martha's blood or clothing fibers. The other thing he said, this guy is a polygraph expert, but he's not a big fan of polygraphs. This is from Tim Dumas' book. A polygraph is just short of voodoo. I've seen them cause a lot of harm in homicide investigations if they are not properly given And Dumas says to him, what do you mean by not properly given? And he says, if, say, they gave the polygraph too soon, too early in the case, before the police knew the details, before they knew the proper questions to ask, and Dumas writes, as I found out, that was precisely what had occurred. I asked Hale about Tommy's having passed the polygraph, as the police had said, and he had written in his report, I heard the tapes of Tommy's test. Professionally, it did not clear anyone of anything. Dumas then asked about Littleton, who became a suspect after he failed a lie detector, his first lie detector test, and Hale said there could have been many reasons for his failing, including fear, nervousness, and improper questioning. He says, there's a difference between asking, do you know something about the case, and did you kill Martha Moxley? Hale is no less critical of the state attorney, Ronald Brown, accusing him of a lack of aggressiveness. Brown tells the Associated Press a Greenwich family, who everyone knows as the Skakels, was not cooperating. This was like about six months after the... Murder. And what happens? Nothing. So what does Brown do next? Does he hold a news conference and embarrass the Skakels again? Does he put pressure on them to cooperate? No, he did nothing. I've investigated over a thousand homicides, Hale continued. I believe the Moxley case is solvable, even at this late date. And this was, again, in 19... this may have been later when Dumas was talking to him, you know, like 20 so years late later. late 90s. What so, the Greenwich yeah. police must do now is question each suspect's friends, their wives, ex-wives, and girlfriends, to determine if such behavior, not necessarily killings, but violent behavior, is repeated. It will not be easy. It will take time and money and manpower. But it can be done. And so the polygraphs that the Greenwich police rested a lot of their belief that Tommy wasn't, just weren't given right. Yeah.
1: And... You know, we later find out. Even if they are, it's so... Right, they're not a good... I don't understand why they still rely on them.
0: And out of the public, out of the limelight, much the police didn't even know, the Skakel family was imploding, particularly Michael. Hmm. Early on in the investigation, a psychiatrist who had profiled the Boston Strangler told one of the investigators that the murderer of Martha Moxley was probably a teenage white male with an explosive temper, hmm. an athletic boy, a boy who may have hang-ups with girls, boy who might be impotent. The psychiatrist says the killer was not in his right mind and he was killing meaninglessly like stepping on a bug and has probably blocked it all out. The investigator asked, you mean he can't remember doing it? And Mm -hmm. the psychiatrist said it's a possibility. And the investigator's response was, I find it very difficult to believe that somebody wouldn't be able to remember doing something like that and therefore kind of So a psychologist wouldn't know. Right. The psychiatrist had advised a battery of tests to explore Tommy Skakel's psyche. Again, nobody was looking at Michael. Rush, a month earlier, would have consented, but it's 1976, and he's lawyered up, and police tried to set up the meeting. They had a meeting with Rush, his lawyers, and the priest, and they asked if they could do tests on Tommy to clear the whole thing up, and they were just told no. Some years later, the lawyer who was at that, Tom Sheridan, who had been a lifelong friend of Rush Skakel and one of the palace guards, wrote in a report by the private investigators, who you'll hear more about later, hired by the family in the early 90s, that both boys are impulsive personalities. And he's paraphrasing the assessment of a psychiatrist they had hired to look at the boys. Both have very poor ego development and a bad self-image. Both are sexually mature and blocked emotionally. Both have an alcohol and possibly drugs problems. Both are very likable and outstanding athletes. Both are lost, personally disorganized, have no life plan. Their only point of departure is in the fact that Tommy feels loved by his family and Michael does not. Hmm. The investigators quoted Sheridan as noting that Michael could be a danger to himself or others. Michael was having a lot of issues. We'll find out more later. They weren't made public at the time. Things hit Rock bottom for Michael in nineteen seventy eight when he got into a drunk driving accident. The girl in the car broke her leg. Michael fled the scene. He was caught, convicted, and he ended up in Elon, a school, if you want to call it that, in Poland, Maine. One Lebacult says Poland Springs, Maine. Mm. First of all, it's Poland Spring, and second of all the town is Poland.
1: Yeah. So there so there. Hey but, on the side note, one of the Route sixty six episodes. A couple of them took place in Poland Spring and Joan who's mommy dearest? Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford was in them. Oh wow. And she was a character in them. Other people kept pronouncing it Poland Springs. It's actually a part of the town of Poland. Well it was uh, it was at the actual resort that was right. there. Yeah that this took place. Yeah. But she called it Poland Springs, she called yeah, it because she, she, she was pronounced correct. it correctly. Anyways. But
0: in any case you can cut the that school out. had started in nineteen seventy. It was founded in nineteen seventy and it followed kind of this new um, philosophy that, right, that you just beat the crap out of kids. Kids were humiliated. They had a boxing ring that you'd throw kids in, mm. and everybody would get to beat them up. Kids <laughs> wore signs around their necks. And it changed over the years to a little better, but it was finally shut down in 2011. I know.
1: I was surprised it was still open that late. I I didn't know the that People it was.
0: who went there later claimed when it closed down, it changed. But there was an internet campaign to close it down. Yeah. And there were lawsuits. In fact, Michael Skagel himself and a friend, Mike Meredith, who was the son of Dandy Don Meredith, back oh, back there, yeah. were trying to put together a lawsuit sometime in the 80s, too. Hmm. Michael was treated very poorly there. He was forced to wear a sign for some time saying, ask me why I killed my friend Martha Marsley oh, yes, or some variation yes, I remember of that. that, yeah. Nobody at the time, again... He was not on police radar or anyone's radar as being a murderer. Yet, the people at Elon, where the lawyers and family had put him, were under the impression he might have had something to do with that murder. Interesting. Where did they get that information? Just hmm. something to think about. He tried to run away three times in 1978,
1: not, hitchhiking. Not many to go. No, he went
0: back to Connecticut and got sent back. Aww. Uh. It turns out that later he when he first got there he told a counselor there that the night of Martha's murder he woke up with blood all over him. The counselor told the father the lawyers who always seem to be with the father and the priest about this. This was later in the report that the family did that became public. And don't tell the cops just tell the kid's father. Another thing was that right after Martha's murder according to the chauffeur Everybody started treating Michael differently. They, they had treated him, apparently, before that with disdain, and everybody was being extra nice to Michael. A family friend said the family also, the house was always open, unlocked, and everything. The day when they were still thinking it was a hitchhiker off the turnpike and everything, the house was locked up, and hmm. they had guys in suits, who wouldn't let neighborhood kids come in and play with the Interesting. And it turns out, too, that in 1978, he told his father that he may have killed Martha during a drunken blackout. The father, Rushton, told the next-door neighbors, Cindy Ix and Bob Ix, who later told an investigator, but then Cindy took it back before she was going to be testifying I'm about it. surprised he
1: told anybody. The reason
0: he told his father was his no, father... No, not
1: Michael. I'm surprised Rush told him Well, anybody. Rush
0: was kind of a dope, and yeah. he was addled, and he ended up dying of frontal lobe dementia, hmm. but um, he was a drunk. He wasn't the brightest star in the universe. Uh, He was kind of an affable, friendly guy. Okay. But the reason he told his dad that was because his dad, shortly after the murder, went into Michael's bedroom, and Michael was dressed in women's clothes. Although The story later changed that he just had a dress of his mom's that he was cuddling with because he missed his mom, but Uh. that seemed revisionist. In a apparently a big talk with his dad, he said that he thinks he might have killed Martha and blacked out. And Elon, he confessed in different ways to a number of people that he thought he might have done it. He also told Mike Meredith in the 1980s when they were talking about that lawsuit against Elon that the night of the murder, he climbed a tree and looked in Martha's bedroom Mm -hmm. and watched her... No, this is there's different stories. And watched her taking a shower and then looked down and saw Tommy running out of the yard. In 1992, he told his friend Andy Pugh, he's the one who said you couldn't go in their house right after it happened, and it basically ended his friendship with Michael. But in 1992, Michael called him up and said, you know, you might think I have something to do with this because that golf club was ours. And this is in 1992. But he said that he climbed a tree that night and jerked off. Now, the story you'll hear later is that he climbed a tree outside her window, which was actually impossible because the trees outside her window weren't climbable. What he told Andy Pugh is he climbed the tree that they called the tree, which they used to hang out in all the time because it was so big and had limbs that reached the ground. And yes, it was the big pine tree, That Martha was found under, and this was in 1992, he told Andy that that's the tree he climbed and jerked off in the night of her murder.
1: Why would you climb a tree to jerk off?
0: He was lying. Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> that answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, you know, DNA was coming out. But right? nobody so was, was he worried that maybe. Well, you'll find okay. out. I have to wait for everything.
0: I'm sorry this story is so long and involved, but okay. I want to cover the bases because of the recent development. So things kind of went along. Ken Littleton was badgered. The state attorney didn't want to do anything. Whatever was happening behind the scenes with the Skakels, And Michael and Tommy and Elon, the school and everything, wasn't coming out publicly. Investigators tried to get to the Skakels. They kept bothering Ken Littleton. But nothing really happened with the case. It was going nowhere. David Moxley died in 1988, never knowing what had happened to his daughter. Then came 1991, 16 years after Martha was killed. And in spring of 1991, you may remember, there was another story involving a Kennedy cousin. William Kennedy Smith yeah, so went on trial. I remember that poor
1: woman with the blue dot over her head yep, on for court raping, TV.
0: For raping a woman in Palm Beach, Florida. A rumor went out, and it was reported on hard copy and other things, that William Kennedy Smith was at the Skakel's house the night Martha was killed, which he wasn't. He wasn't anywhere near her. And William Kennedy Smith is the son of... Jean Kennedy Smith and Stephen Smith, she's a sister of Bobby and John Kennedy in that whole family. Yes, and he's
1: not related to the Skakels. He's
0: not related to the Skakels, except by marriage, but it kind of revived the case, including somebody who had been at Elon with Michael, saw that hard copy, and called an investigator of a case and said, you know, William Kennedy Smith wasn't at the Moxley's house, But I know a little bit about that thing, and the person you really ought to be looking at is Michael. Michael really wasn't on anybody's radar. Now, we're going to go back to the early 1980s for a minute, because one thing that happened was Len Levitt, who wrote the book Convicted that I read, was hired by the Greenwich Time and Stanford Advocate to investigate the story. He was a hotshot reporter for Newsday on Long Island, and they had just bought those two newspapers. He spent two years investigating the story, and then they wouldn't run it. They wouldn't run it. They wouldn't run it. They really wouldn't give him a reason. But they, too, had been
1: cowed. And they were afraid. And they were, were they afraid, afraid because of his the lawsuit, story... Lawsuit maybe, well, his or... story
0: was basically that the investigators, the police had botched the case from the beginning. Not that there was a cover-up or anything, but just that they yeah. couldn't handle it. They were... They did... They made a lot of mistakes and had basically fucked up the investigation. And the paper... And, you know, we've heard a lot about fake news and that type of things. Newspapers, much more often than making things up, which they don't, are guilty of of not having any balls. Yeah. And this is a perfect case of that. So 1991 came around, and this happened with William Kennedy Smith. And an editor at the New York Daily News remembered that Len Levitt, he knew him or something, had been writing that story, had written that story that had never appeared. So he went sent a reporter to interview Len Levitt about the fact that the Moxley case, which oh, wow. had pretty much fallen off of everybody's radar except for a couple people investigating it, and Len Levitz, it hadn't fallen off his radar, sent him over to interview Len, and Len got his two cents in, apparently, about the story never running, and that was May 1st or something, 1991, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, the story ran almost exactly as he had written it. Wow. And that fired up the case. On August 8th, 1991, there was a new police chief in Greenwich, and he announced that... He, with the state attorney Ronald Brown, who still was leery about doing anything, nice. announced that they were reopening the investigation. And a new investigator with the Greenwich PD was Frank Garr, who Len Levitt later befriended and talked about in his book. And I read something that after Skakel was convicted, and Levitt started writing his book. They reached a financial agreement on the book, and that was used, I think, kind of against them in some cases, that it compromised the investigation Because the Kennedys, when the Kennedys got involved, the Skakels probably didn't run out of money, but since Skakel has been convicted, they've pulled no stops trying to do everything they can to discredit the The investigation. Oh, I'm sure. The investigation was reopened. There was fresh blood, fresh interest, but Ronald Brown was still the state's attorney, and not much happened. But another thing that was happening in the early 90s was DNA was coming about. Yes. And the DNA...
1: Or DNA tests. DNA as testing. There's always that. As been you DNA. told me in the whatever case I yes, said. it wasn't DNA, as it was DNA, DNA testing. DNA wasn't around Yeah, you said DNA test.
0: But around the same time this happened, and maybe because they were nervous about the investigation reopening, Rushton Skakel and his friend attorney, Tom Sheridan, decided, and this is probably the biggest mistake they ever made in their lives, to hire two FBI agents to investigate the case. Yeah. And they claimed at the time that if a Skakel had done it, they'd get him the help he needs. If the Skakel were involved in every way. But what they really were trying to do was get, get the goods on Ken Littleton. Mm-hmm. The mistake they made was hiring a really good FBI investigator named Murphy who was going to get to the bottom of the case. And they also vowed that they were going to share the results immediately with Connecticut authorities uh-huh. when the... Investigation and this is, it will come to be known as the Sutton Report. Hmm. One Levitt was approached by these guys and they were having trouble getting some of the case files and stuff to do their report. And he had done a Freedom of Information filing earlier to get the stuff for his story. And they asked if he would share his case files with them, and he said sure. And they said okay, and we'll share our report with you when it's done. And he's like, yeah, okay. But then a year later, in 1993, he reads in the New York Daily News a story about this investigation, I think it's the first time it was reported on, that the Skakels were doing, and they said it would tie Littleton to not only to Martha's murder but to a number of murders, uh. making him sound like a serial killer, including one in Maine where Littleton had never been, and they said they could tie him to, and it was just the Skakels spinning it, and there was nothing oh, of the sort in the report, and Len Lovett felt a little burned, because they were supposed to give the report to him, uh. but a couple of years went by, there was no news on it, nothing happened, nothing publicly was going on on the case, but Frank Garr, the new investigator for the for the Greenwich Police Department, was beginning to suspect that Michael Skagel had something to do with it, despite his alibi. And I still don't understand why everybody thought that was such a
1: solid alibi. Maybe because so many people had said it.
0: Finally, sometime in late 1995, Len Levitt was given the report by somebody who he still hasn't identified. But the report said, among other things, that Martha knew her killer. And she didn't know Littleton. They had never met. He had just moved into the Skakel's house that day, and she and he never met. They never saw each other. Uh, Littleton never saw her. And also, more importantly, had extensive interviews with Tommy and Michael. And they were both told, they were separate interviews, that Henry Lee... Dr. Henry Lee, who yes, he was... who's um, still
1: around. He's like 150 right. years and, old and now. Right, he and
0: was, he was Connecticut's big forensics examiner. Right. I'm sorry, I don't know his title. And he was made famous in the O.J. Simpson yes. trial, one of the many.
1: And he was in that Jean Monnet special.
0: Right, <laughs> he's in everything. But Tommy and Michael were both told that Henry Lee was going to be looking for DNA ah, yes. evidence. And what year was this? Was this, this was 19... It, well, when they were interviewed was, let's see... Tommy was talked to in August of 1992. Okay. They talked to Tommy first. It was Michael who was talked to in August. They talked to Tommy first, and he changed his story. Instead of saying goodbye to Martha at 930, he said he said goodbye to her, and then he went inside for a while to do something, and that's when he saw Ken Littleton. I can't remember exactly what he said he went to do. Maybe write a little bit of his Abraham Abraham Lincoln paper. She waited for him outside, and it was a cold night, and I do remember one point from, I think it must have been Mark Furman's book, because it wasn't in either of the books, that is, she didn't really seem that interested in him. Was she really going to wait outside in the cold when she was supposed to be home? Then he said he went back outside, and they fooled around in the yard excuse me if anybody has sensitivities mutually masturbating each other to orgasm in the yard Got it. and then she went home a little before 10 so that's his new story and why would you tell that story because DNA. you're afraid your yeah, DNA yeah. might be
1: found yeah.
0: michael Who still, in 1992, has not been tied to the case by anyone, unless the family suspects he was involved, but he hasn't been tied to it publicly or by the police. Oh, and by the way, Tommy, when he told that story, broke down and started crying. And the FBI guy said later he was very sure he was about to get a confession to what Tommy's involvement was, but... Manny Margolis, one of the two family lawyers, Tom Sheridan and Manny Margolis, asked Tommy if he needed a break and then what? shut down then shut down the interview. Uh, now,
1: and this is the family investigator. Oh, so uh, I was going to say he's young but he's not anymore. He's, he was 36. 1992. Yes, I know. He was
0: 36 and the I father of a couple kids. But Asshole. more interestingly, on August 4, 1992, they interviewed Michael and they told him the same thing they told Tommy about the DNA and he said Mm, You know, when I got home from the Terrians, I didn't go right to bed.
1: Oh, gee, I just remember. I climbed
0: a tree outside Martha's window, and I jerked off. Mm. And then I got all nervous, thinking, oh, what if somebody sees me? I climbed down the tree. I ran across, and as I was running across the driveway, I looked over at where the big pine tree was, and it it just gave me the creeps. And I almost felt like somebody was there, so I threw some rocks over there and yelled, Hey, get away, you creep, or something like that, and
1: went home. It's a likely story.
0: Well, some speculation is that the reason he told that is in case anyone saw him and remembers they saw him in the yard that night or says they saw him because this investigation was being renewed, that would put him in the yard, Waving his arm. Oh, you think I was hitting somebody over the head with a golf club? Ah, no, I was just throwing rocks. Okay. Or like if his DNA ended up at something in the scene. Well, yeah, I threw some rocks over there. So that's not yeah. my DNA. Yeah, Michael he didn't have to didn't tell know. that story because nobody at the time I know. was publicly or, or the police were not. He was not on the
1: police and radar. And as far as they were concerned, he hadn't even been there.
0: Right. He had been at the Terrians and then got home to bed, and they were still kind of caught on this. It happened at 10 o'clock, because that's when the dogs in the neighborhood were barking. Although it was mischief night, it was windy, there was a lot of weird shit going on. So the report also said, again, that she knew her killer. That because of the injuries, because there are no defensive injuries, and I'm simplifying it. Okay. Also that the killer was was comfortable. No, because (laughs) I've (laughs) been talking for a long time and people are tired of my voice. That the killer knew the neighborhood, wasn't afraid of being out in the dark, was probably used to being out in the dark, was used to prowling around. Michael, by the way, had admitted to being a peeping Tom and looking in Hmm, people's windows. He also said... That that night before he went over to Martha's to jerk off in the tree, there was this neighbor lady he liked to watch um, down the street because she'd be naked in her house, and he went down and looked like in me, <laughs> and she wasn't you know, like me. I'm like oh god. It Ew. says also she was struck fourteen to fifteen times oh. in the head with the golf club till it broke. And you know an iron, it's yeah. an iron, it's hard to break yeah. a golf. I have played golf with some really volatile people mm. who have thrown clubs and hit trees with clubs, and I've never seen a club broke uh, an iron broken. She was beaten so hard that club broke into three pieces and then stabbed through the neck with the shaft of it. A psychiatrist in the report said it was personalized rage. And this was an FBI profiler, by the way. The FBI guy who did the report, in fact, had given the case to this group at the FBI headquarters who profile serial killers and stuff to look at the case. The traits of the person would have been an explosive temper, a history of violence, alcohol and drug problem comfortable at night, comfortable in the neighborhood. There was a sexual component. Also in the report was a 1976 psychological evaluation of Tommy that the family had done um, secretly, and they they had done it under a different name, Tom Butler. And it comes out, he can't really remember what he and Martha talked about that night, but he very specifically remembers minute by minute about the Abraham Lincoln report. When he went to Ken Littleton's room, he went to the family library to look for the book on Abraham Lincoln, blah, blah, blah. The report points out that he's obviously lying about the Abraham Lincoln report, which it was found out later he was. Teachers told both Tim Dumas and other people, uh, Len Levitt, that he had never been assigned that report. But that you remember that kind of stuff in detail, but don't remember the conversation he had with the girl who was murdered that night. He also said that when Julie came to his room when... Dorothy Moxley called at 1.15. He told Julie the last time he saw Martha was at 9.30. And Julie told Dorothy that, and that's what everybody said. So he was either lying then, if he went back outside and fooled her with Martha, or... You know he's he's lying and now. Like, you know, and he had fooled the polygraph a couple times on that. If him going back out and fooling around with her was true, why
1: would she wait outside? Yeah, she wouldn't.
0: Even if she kind of liked him, I think she would go home because she was supposed to be home. Well, she lived right next door. And she lived so next she door. She could have
1: snuck back out if she wanted to be with him.
0: Well, and there's speculation that maybe she did sneak out, and for whatever reason, because she used to sneak out once in a while, and. That Michael did go to the Terrians and she wasn't... The only reason the cops think she was killed at 10 is because of the dogs. Oh, yeah. And who knows what else was going on in the neighborhood. Ed Hammond had gone out for a walk. The private police officer had seen him walking and thought it was creepy. (laughs) Ford also says that in 1978, Michael first was on the police radar because of his drunk driving accident, which struck Len Levitt as weird because Len Levitt had extensively investigated and reported on this story and knew that in 1978 the police were not looking at Michael so at all. it's like
1: revisionist history there.
0: No, well, Len Levitt's speculation is that it's the Skakels report. Oh. that the Skakels thought Michael was involved, okay. and it, it just got a little confusing by things. It was Tom Sheridan, the lawyer, who said that. Oh. So why do you think the Skakels did that, did that report? Because they wanted to nail Ken Littleton. Oh, I see. They thought they could prove Ken Littleton did it. They didn't realize they get such an honest, thorough investigator.
1: Oh, yeah. Or maybe
0: that's right. Rushton Skakel was in denial and didn't realize his kid had done it. Maybe the lawyers pushed it and didn't realize Michael had done it. Yeah. Maybe only Michael and Tommy knew
1: Michael yeah. had done it. I mean, maybe people just didn't believe they had done it. They couldn't believe that. But they had done it. I mean, there that was that's a June. Reasonable. Also,
0: in the report, also in the report was a June 1978 memo. By Tom Sheridan, the lawyer, Mm -hmm. saying that it's possible Michael committed the murder, blacked out and didn't remember it, and Tommy could have helped hide the body. And it doesn't say why the family thought that, but that's why they sent Michael to Elon or one of the reasons. Years later, when Len Levitt asked Tom Sheridan about that memo, he had no recollection of it at all. Yeah. Another thing Michael said to the investigators is that he saw Tommy and Martha carrying on at the side of the house around 930. And Len Levitt thought, well, how did he see that if he had gone to the Terrians? Hmm. The report says, and this is a quote, there's curious evidence, unquote, that he never went to the terrorists. Yeah. Now, this is the Skakels family report. Yeah. And remember this when we talked in a and minute or The, the two. report
1: that the investigator wrote.
0: This is the report that the Skakels hired yes. the FBI investigators to do.
1: Yes. But I'm saying the investigators wrote it. But I'm surprised that it still right. was around. Like no one got rid of it or destroyed well, it. Well, it.
0: it was leaked to Len Levitt. And I don't know why nobody destroyed it immediately, I'm but surprise. they had said they were going to give it to the Connecticut authorities. I think it was leaked shortly after it was completed. I'm not sure, but that is interesting. At the time the report was done, Rushton Jr. told them he wasn't sure Michael had gone to the Terrians that night. Ooh. And, that an, and John Skakel, who also had gone to the Terrians under hypnosis couldn't put Michael in the car hmm. in 1993. Um, in any case, Michael had put himself at the scene of the murder, and the police focus still wasn't on him. But the Skakels, when that report was done, instead of contacting the authorities immediately like they said they would do, huh. or releasing it, or anything else, or getting their boys
1: help, they fired Murphy, the FBI investigator. Yeah, that's what report. you do when you're rich, and... And, you know, people don't tell you what you want to hear. It is. You get to fire them. So,
0: Len Levitt, it took him a while because, again, the newspapers were chicken shit. But in late 1995, he did a story about how how Tommy and Michael had changed their stories. The newspapers in Greenwich and Stanford... I can't remember, it got buried, but then they had to pick it up and run it because it was actually... Oh, the newspaper, he worked for, I think, New York Newsday or something at the time, and they ran it, like, on the fourth page or in the local section, and it was a big story. But still, nothing really happened. To get the investigation going, and part of it was, by this point, Frank Gard, who was the investigator on the case, along with the guy, Jack Solomon, from the state attorney's office, Jack Solomon was the guy who tried to badger Ken Littleton, who had Ken Littleton's ex-wife lie to him. He was still sure it was Ken Littleton, but Frank Garr was thinking it was Michael, Hmm. but couldn't get the state attorney to do anything about it, so nothing happened. But anyway, in 1996, they did an Unsolved Mysteries. And Frank ah, Gar went to California. With, with Robert Stack. I think so, yeah. And remember how in Unsolved Mysteries they used to have the bank of phones there? And oh, people yeah. Call in? No, I thought that was, um, was that Unsolved Mysteries? According to this book, it was okay. Unsolved Mysteries. I was thinking
1: of the one with America's right. Moose on it.
0: So after the show aired, they're, they're waiting for the phone calls, expecting to get tips, and the phones ring off the hook. And apparently they have these cards, according to Len Levitt's book, like a yellow card, come over here when you have a chance, for Frank Gar to talk to the person. Oh, I see. A green card, like a red card. Card, get over here right away, and the red cards are just flying. When it wasn't Littleton, and it wasn't Tommy, it was all calls about Michael, Ooh. and a lot of it was from people who had been at Elon with him. Yeah. And that's when the stuff about e- his confessions at Elon came out.
1: Interesting.
0: When Frank Garr later went to Elon to look at Michael's files from the school, uh, the file, all it had was a page, like, it admitting he had been there in one else. Everybody else's file were inches and inches
1: thick, and Michael's had nothing in it. Was and that when Joe Ritchie still? Yeah, Joe Ritchie started it.
0: it. Joe Ritchie and a psychiatrist started it. Joe Ritchie also on Scarborough Downs. Which he was wasn't a track. psychiatrist or a doctor no, or a teacher. Some... And he was actually, interestingly, from Port Chester, New York, which was right across the border from Greenwich. Ah, oh, I didn't know a that. Little, another little coincidence in the case. Around this time, too... The writers were circling, and the only reason I bring this up is not because I'm a big, you know, writer groupie or whatever, but because it affected the case in a lot of ways. Dominic Dunn, who we talked about in our stalking episode, yes. whose daughter had been murdered by her boyfriend in 1982, and so who made a life out of writing books about young women who were murdered and didn't get justice, had written a book in, um, that came out in 1993 called A Season in Purgatory, a fictionalized account of it that made the police look awful. He was hanging around... Tim Dumas, whose book came out in 1998, um, and he was a writer in Greenwich, and he did his book. Greentown is a really nice, thorough job, and he's rewritten it mm.
1: since with
0: new information. He hasn't just added something at the end. He's yes. rewritten. Yeah, nice. right. Len Levitt, who we've talked about, convicted, came out in 2003 after Skakel was convicted, And Mark Furman, Mm -hmm. who, I won't go into everything that happened, but he's the guy, as he's described in at least one of these books, who denied on the stand at the O.J. Simpson trial. He said nigger, and then was proved that he did say it. And did he hide the glove, didn't he, and all that. But, so in any case, he decided to forge a new career as a writer, although I think it's funny that he needed a ghostwriter if he was going to forge a new career. And his agent was looking around for an unsolved murder for him to write about, and she knew Dominic Dunn and called him up, and Dominic Dunn said, hey, well, he should do the Martha Moxley thing. So, in 1997, Mark mm-hmm. Furman blows into Greenwich, and he's hoping Len Levitt can help him out. <laughs> and Len Levitt, it starts out okay, but somebody leaks the Sutton report to Mark Furman, yeah. and then he and Len Levitt get into And basically, so these writers are all, like, backbiting and um, mm-hmm. trying to play the police against each other and everything. It's kind of funny, but Mark Furman gets a hold of the Sutton Report, and basically his entire book is based on that. Yeah. Or I should say Steve Woods, I think, was his ghostwriter's entire book is based on that. I'm not sure how you ghostwrite a book. I mean, I'm not sure how... Like, I can see, like, having a memoir and having a ghostwriter, like Michael Skakel later did, tried to you do... You can be
1: my ghostwriter but when I, write I don't memoir. see. I will.
0: But I don't see how you do, like, something that's not about you and have
1: a ghostwriter.
0: Like, how did...
1: So I get Mark what Furman you're must have
0: talked, and the writer must have put it
1: into good writing or something. I don't think it's a ghostwriter. I think it's a fucking writer. In any case,
0: Frank Gar, the investigator, and I think by this point he was the sole investigator. The other guy, Jack Solomon, who was just, had that big boner for Littleton, had retired, but he was still, had the state attorneys ear. heard that Furman was going to name Michael as the murderer in his book, which was going to come out in 1998. Now, Gar had... Been thinking since 1992, and more and more increasingly, that Michael was the murderer, but nobody would listen to him. And he was trying to get them to convene a grand jury, which in this case would have been one judge, not an actual jury. And I can't, I don't know what the legalities of why this would happen, but the state attorney was hesitant to do it. So sure enough, nothing happens. Furman's book comes out, naming Michael as the killer, and everybody goes nuts, and a grand jury gets named And everybody gives Mark Furman credit. Uh, And the poor investigator, who is this guy who's been working on nothing but this case for a decade, or whatever, you know. So a grand jury, it took forever. It took from June 1998 to December 1999 to hear all the witnesses. I was on a grand jury once, and we met, like, Twice a month, or
1: something. So was, but this was a grand jury with just a judge. Yeah, with the instead of a group of. Aim of indicting of Michael peers. Stakel. Okay.
0: Michael was indicted on January 18th, 2000, and originally he was going to be tried as an adult. I mean, as a juvenile because he was I a remember that because
1: I thought it was odd. So
0: yeah, so there was a lot of back and forth about that. He went to trial and was convicted in 2002. I remember that. Is the story over? No, it's not. He was sentenced to 20 years to life. Since then, there was a string of appeals. Um, there was one about the statute of limitations. There was one. Which could
1: there be one? There was a because five-year was a juvenile. statute of
0: limitations on juvenile murders, okay. which was denied. There was another one. on uh, There was a bunch of them. I can't remember them all. Uh, eventually, the defense came out with the two black guys theory. A cousin of Kobe Bryant, there's all these cousins, named Tony Bryant, who was not a lawyer, although described as one in some stories. He went to the Brunswick School for a while, I think, or another school with some of these guys, and that he and two of his friends from the Bronx would come to Greenwich and hang out with the Skakels, and that that night they came, and one of the guys, um, his name is um, Adolf Hasbrook said he was going to go caveman on a white girl. He had seen Martha there, had uh, developed a thing for her, so he wanted to go all caveman on her and beat her up and rape her, and that's why the pulling her by the hair, dragging her by the uh, hair thing is significant, uh, because it ties it to the caveman thing. So this was mm-hmm. 2006. It's nothing new. Originally, they didn't say who these guys were. A judge forced them to name, the defense to name the guys. They went before the court. Hasbrook and Tony Bryant both took the fifth. So he's still around.
1: Hasbrook. His
0: life Adult. has been ruined by this. Well. Len Levitt did an interview with him recently, and he had nothing to do with it. He doesn't have a criminal record. He's And Tony Bryant, the guy who originally told someone who told the cops that this happened, has gone back on it saying what he said was totally misinterpreted. These guys didn't do it. And my thing is, and it's still being brought up. It's still being brought up by Bobby Kennedy and people. Yeah. Don't you think if there were two black guys roaming around that neighborhood at night, somebody would see them and every fucking person. Everybody would have remembered seeing
1: two black guys.
0: Because no black people lived there in 1975. They would know it now. And all this thing with who was at the Moxley's house and who was doing what and who was doing this. I mean, there's Jeffrey Byrne and Helen Ix and all these characters Nobody saw two black guys in the gated white community, and nobody
1: would have said, "Oh, there nobody, were these two black guys from the
0: Bronx right. there." I don't and know if, who they if, were. And if everybody's willing, but let's focus on Ken Littleton. Right. If everybody's willing to hang it on two black guys, decades after it happened, don't you fucking think they would have been willing to do it in 1975? I mean, nobody was protecting. So that to me just doesn't. Pass it's a bunch this, of bullshit. It's bullshit.
1: It's it, bullshit. It, it but does, you know, and it's the kind of thing that. Someone could have been bragging, oh yeah, I knew them, oh yeah, you know, some bullshit. But, I mean, come on. Right. Come on. There's no way. So, another basis for appeal, and
0: I'm not really clear on how many times you can file for appeals. I thought you can only do it once. No. But apparently, if you have enough yes, money yes, and enough influence, <laughs> you can just keep fine, though. No. Another one was that Mickey Sherman didn't give an adequate defense, and he kind of didn't. In, in both books, he kind of, I think he really thought that his state didn't have a case, and he was kind of having fun being in the limelight, and he was joking around and glib and didn't seem to take things seriously. He allowed a jury to be picked that had a lot of people with college educations and stuff on it, which you don't want if you're a defense lawyer. No No offense to people who haven't gone to college, but he just didn't take it seriously because he thought they were going to win and he thought they didn't have a case, and shame on him. And he really thinks, supposedly, that Michael Kennedy might... That Michael Skagel's accent. <laughs>
1: Ooh, freaking slip.
0: One of the things, getting back to, I should have talked a little more about the memoir because that was one of the appeals, that Frank Gar, the investigator, subpoenaed Michael Skagel's ghostwriter, who lived in Cambridge, Mass., and they got a cross-state subpoena, and I don't know how that works, and got all the tapes and Michael's 37-page treatment of what he was going to say, and Michael's words were used against ah. him in a lot of ways. The whole point of the book was he was going to, like, shine the light on the Kennedy family. You know, he had helped Bobby Kennedy Jr. overcome heroin addiction Mm -hmm. in 1983. He unwittingly unmasked Michael Kennedy's affair with a 15-year-old babysitter. Oh, yeah. And Michael later that year died in a skiing accident, and the family blamed Michael Skagel, because Michael Skagel had to testify against him. He was going to try to help get Michael Kennedy into a sex addiction program, and instead... But is
1: Michael Kennedy the one whose wife committed suicide? Don't remember. Oh, okay. Bobby Kennedy's
0: wife might have. But well, anyway, Michael crashed into a tree while skiing without a helmet. That's Kennedy-style right. and killed himself. Just like Sonny Boner. So one of the appeals was that Frank Gar got that information illegally, and that was shot down by a judge.
1: Please.
0: So in 2012, Michael Skagel was denied parole, and in 2013... And all this
1: time he's been out, I'm sorry. No, appeal. he was oh. in
0: jail from 2002. Oh, that's right. Okay, I remember seeing
1: him with orange
0: thing on. Okay. He, yeah. They did other things, like they argued in 2012 for a sentence reduction, saying he should have been tried in juvenile court. Um. So the 2013 appeal that finally stuck was that um, Mickey Sherman made serious mistakes in the trial. And he was ordered a new trial in 2013. In 2014, he was freed from jail. And just in December, his conviction was reinstated by a 4-3 to vote of the Connecticut Supreme Court. Hmm. Since then, he was freed on 1.2 million bail, and he had served about 11
1: years. And he was originally, sorry to interrupt, but he was originally... Sentenced to 20?
0: 20 years, and he was up for parole after 10, which was denied. And then this appeal was approved, or whatever the word is. It's late, and I can't think of it. He was let out of jail in November 2014. His conviction was upheld in December, but he's still out of jail because in what other attorneys are calling an unprecedented request, and this is from Associated Press, I don't want to get it wrong, his lawyers are asking that a vacancy on the Supreme Court be filled either by a newly appointed justice or lower court judge elevated before the court take up a motion to reconsider that was filed by Mm. his lawyer. So they're just fucking lawyering the hell out of this. So now they're waiting. Here we are waiting for that panel to get their seventh lawyer back because one of them retired or something after that vote was taken, and so they can't reconsider the motion. And meanwhile, Bobby Kennedy had a book that came out this fall, and I yeah. admit I haven't read it, but I've seen him talking on TV, and I've read articles, and it doesn't seem to have anything new. And one interesting thing is, one of the things they've said is a key alibi witness for Michael wasn't didn't testify at trial. And from what I can tell, that key alibi witness was his brother, John Skakel, who under hypnosis in 1993 couldn't have put Michael in the car. And also, I think a lot of the evidence proves that it may not have happened at 10. The only reason the cops thought it happened at 10 was because of the barking dogs. Yes. And nobody really knows what happened between 9... The coroner said she was killed sometime between 9.30 and 5 (laughs) a.m. And nobody really knows. Except and unfortunately, the people
1: who did it. like many of these, like Bonet and like, I don't know how many other murders, if things had been done correctly from the beginning, if, a lot if evidence had been
0: preserved correctly. If if the power and influence of the Skakels hadn't blinded police to the fact yes. that... And Nadine the same thing happened
1: with the jo- also, with JonBenet. And, and also
0: you look at people's suppositions. Suppositions kind of dismissing the psychological stuff in the yes. 70s. Oh, that couldn't have happened. You know, a kid couldn't have done this. See,
1: if I were to pick what I think is the most plausible thing that happened, is that he did, maybe he saw her with with Tommy, and I'm not saying that whatever she was doing with Tommy was willing. Right. Um, He might have been pawing at her, but whatever. He was jealous or something, but he was probably drunk. He probably blocked it out. If you brutally killed somebody. Right. And I wonder if either he or Tommy
0: was trying to do something sexual with her, and she ran away, and a fight ensued, and then this happened. Yeah. You know, a lot of things could have happened. Those bruises And on maybe her Tommy did
1: see something or, or help Michael. Right. Or maybe he ran away. I mean, who knows?
0: One thing is for sure, they both lied about what happened that yes, night. And when, the, and when the specter of DNA was presented to them, they both put themselves in her pants, basically. Or mm-hmm. in, They both made sure that their DNA at the scene could be accounted for. And nothing ever came of any DNA testing. Things weren't preserved well. There's never been any talk of exhuming her to do DNA tests. I, you know, her body laid out there for hours and hours and hours on a cold, windy October day. Yes. People were tromping around. What's irritating to me is that it just keeps going. Dorothy Moxley is 84. Yeah. You know, John is in his late 50s. They just never will get any peace. And a couple times it's been mentioned in the books I read and stuff that the reason Len Levitt and Frank Garn and people like that were have been so persistent is because they want to give Dorothy, some peace. And while I appreciate that, I think a bigger thing is, as a society, we need to be assured that when somebody gets murdered for no good reason, or even for good reason, that the police are going to solve it. And Mm -hmm. then when it's not solved, and when power and influence and things like that matter more to people, and matter more, like there were a couple comments that the people in the neighborhood didn't seem to give that much of a shit. It might have been a dog who had been hit by a car or something. They would rather protect their image the image of their neighborhood and to me that's a bigger thing in solving a murder i mean it's, i think it's important for the family to get justice but i think it's important for everybody to get justice did the moxley stay in that no neighborhood? i no. was gonna say it must have been they, so frustrating they moved to, to live new there york. they moved to new york city and then a guy it's funny tim dumas went back a guy named john lee an actor bought the house and didn't realize what had happened there till after he bought it And the first person to come greet him was Rushton Skakel, drunkenly lurching up the driveway with a drink for him. And he he said he's the only one, because John Lee is of Asian descent. He's like Asian-Irish descent. And he said Rushton Skakel was the only one in the neighborhood who was ever friendly to him. And he lived there for a long time. The house ended up being torn down. It was one of the original houses in the neighborhood, and kind of falling apart. But also, a lot of the houses were getting torn down because... What do people do? They tear down big mansions and put up bigger ones. And the tree got cut down, but it was determined, if I didn't make it clear earlier, that the tree outside her window was not one that could be climbed. I think Dorothy Moxley said at one point a monkey couldn't even climb that tree. It was too thin. And at one point, because Michael gave very variations of the climbing the tree thing, One time he said he climbed up the tree and accidentally, but it was John Moxley's bedroom. Yes. And there was a tree outside of John Moxley's bedroom that also wasn't climbable. Hmm. The only real climbable tree was the big pine that he and Andy, his friend Andy, used to play in all the time and climb up just, and smoke dope in. just right. making up stories. And because this has been a long, involved episode tonight,
1: yeah. and
0: we're skipping Ask a Lawyer till next week, oh, okay. um, we didn't really have recommendations planned, oh, no. but I'll just say I read Greentown by Tim Dumas mm-hmm. and Conviction by Len Levitt, and I think they're both Good books if you want to find out more about this murder and what happened. There's so much. I mean, I've been talking for a long time, and there's so much you really can't say everything. But neither of those books, I feel, is questionable in its reporting. And both of those guys did a really thorough job. And now you read Mark Furman's when it first came out, yes, I did.
1: Well, or whatever, And it's
0: Stephen Woods' book when it first came out, and (laughs) I. Remember being confused as to why Mark Furman would be writing a book, and now I realize, and maybe I realized well, at the time and forgot that well, Mark Furman did a his name would have sold. Right, but why is he doing, I thought, why is he doing this? I mean, I know he screwed up at the O.J. thing and he can't be a cop anymore because everybody thinks he's full of shit and stuff, but why is he
1: Yeah, no, being I always a writer? Thought that was I mean, weird. it's a
0: weird choice for him. Why doesn't he just go into privacy? Well, security?
1: Joseph Wamba yeah, he was a cop and a writer. I don't think
0: Joseph Wamba had some faker, right, under his, I would never be a ghostwriter. I'd want my name on the. Well, phone. I can understand if someone wants to write but, a memoir like you but said. But I like Tim Dumas's I mean, book different. for its writing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a better writer than Len Levitt. And he says Poland's Spring instead of Springs, even though it's actually in the town of Poland, which only, only would bug people from Maine. I know. Len Levitt's is a little more self indulgent. He goes on this big thing about how, you know, the story's never about you as a reporter and then it's a first person thing. He hmm. had to be convinced to do it. But he's also a little more old fashioned. Like there's one point, you know, it's very uh, male oriented, and there's one point where he refers to a female reporter asking a question, and there's no reason to point out she's female. But I realize oh, that's the first female reporter he's mentioned in the book. It's yeah. toward the end. But his work on the case was very thorough and he didn't have when he started, when he was hired by the those two newspapers to look into it, he didn't have an axe to grind. Yeah. He didn't have anything against the yeah. Skakels. He was a good reporter who was looking into the Little thing.
1: Story, yeah.
0: I think it's I think it's a shame. I think people should read those books because I think it's a shame that people and we've heard some podcasts and stuff are still willing to believe that Michael Skakel was railroaded. And that the two black eye theory or whatever, and when you look at everything that's been thrown, oh, they, I think
1: most people discount the two black theory. Yeah, I there's mean, the two black eye thing.
0: So, the defense didn't look into Tommy because they're gonna throw one skakel under the board. I mean, the prosecution didn't look hard enough at Tommy, which they did. Um, yeah. Ken Littleton, the poor guy whose whose life was ruined, who was just shredded by these guys, and. If he had been Michael Smith of, you know, 233 Main Street working yeah. at the sausage shop or something, he would have fucking been in jail a long time I ago. Know. And But he probably wouldn't have been beating up the girl across the street because he was so fucked up either. It's sad, though, that he, who knows it's what It's a sad believes. story, and I have to say, Dorothy Moxley, Moxley is a very forgiving woman. And she has never really come out, she was happy he was convicted, but has never come out and said nasty things about the Skakels. But a funny thing, at his trial, after John Knoxley, Martha's brother, testified, a Skakel aunt said to him, you son of a bitch, or something like that, or before he testified, or something, it's her. like, this is the brother of the victim, and if the guy you're hearing to support in court, didn't kill her. This guy certainly didn't. You should have some compassion
1: for this guy. You know, yeah. but that's
0: how that's how they are.
1: Maybe he doesn't. He's. I mean, if he was blacked out drunk, you know. I mean, I've known
0: people. But I think <coughs> he's tried to say he did it. Like, Len Lovett points out he couldn't fucking shut up. There's one thing, because there were so many things. Before he got sent to Elon, he used to go to the psychiatrist in New York, Mm -hmm. and he had some big blow-up with Rushton. The chauffeur brought him. He was doing all sorts of shit, but when they were coming back, the kid got out of the car on the Triborough Bridge and was going to jump off the bridge, and the chauffeur had to go get him and bring him back. Michael Skakel. Yeah, no, bring him back
1: I was like, why the chauffeur stop? Oh, they were in tra- they, they were they were traffic. traffic time I know. for a traffic study. <laughs> uh,
0: but Michael Skakel said to the chauffeur, let me go, let me die, let me jump. I've done something so awful. If you knew what I did, I'd have to leave the country or I'd have to kill myself. Yeah. blah blah blah. He was a fucked up kid who tried in many, many ways over the years to... Confess and maybe he remembers, and maybe he doesn't. Yeah, but, but he might some, know he
1: did it, he, right? Yeah,
0: he may know he did it because the whole thing about his clothes. I mean, I with can imagine you would, I can
1: imagine if you did something that violent, you your mind would block his, a lot of it. Right, out.
0: and his family was more concerned. I mean, you go into
1: a lot of people say that in too. In fact, it tells him. Oh, I, in, I woke up. I I it, came to when they were in fact, dead. one I mean, little
0: thing that's never made as a parallel, but is mentioned in Tim Dumas's book. And maybe that girl, Sheila McGuire, I can't remember, or a different girl in the book, several years before was walking to school with a friend, and the friend was ahead of her, and the friend was hit by a car and killed right in front of her, and she doesn't remember seeing it. She remembers walking, Yeah. and she doesn't. She's still to this day. And so you can do something, but it's like he was, I think Michael was reaching out, like when he told his counselor at Elon that he was woke up covered in blood, yeah, he Some, but somebody helped people. him clean up. Somebody cleaned up his clothes. He cleaned up his clothes or somebody else did. But I mean I think that he somebody killed that girl. Yeah. Brutally. Somebody who knew her.
1: The only other person I would think would be his brother. And I think that th- there's more evidence that I think he his
0: brother it. knows what happened or was involved somehow. somehow.
1: I think that some of the family must have suspected stuff and just wanted to protect. The family they acted, didn't want to know.
0: Yes, the family acted almost immediately as though there was something yeah. to protect. And the police didn't push them yeah. So that is the story of Martha Moxley. And oh. if we find out more I mean Michael Skakel, I had originally read that motion was supposed to be heard in March but March is almost over they're probably just and they're waiting delaying for the Connecticut court I, supreme court to replace and they're just going to keep delaying but what's the I saw I mean, one people really
1: going to be acquitted I, I think mean, that,
0: I think the Kennedys are relentless and I saw this one timeline when I was researching this that it, from the time he got into court, it's just been constant, constant appeals. No, oh, yeah. And when you think well, about the amount of money and how that ties up the courts. And it's funny, too, that, you know, Ethel Kennedy and stuff never had much to do with this, never had much to do with anything. But it is sentencing, people had to give statements and stuff. And hers was just this very bland, cliche filled thing yeah. that really didn't say anything. And then I see this article with Dorothy Moxley, Moxley and Ethel Kennedy, you know, two matriarchs shattered by this. And I'm like, Ethel Kennedy doesn't give a fucking shit, except for maybe how it, it reflects on yeah, the on Kennedys. Her. Yeah. And I think in the beginning, because they didn't like the Skelts, that they were just like, why don't these? Why do people keep saying that they're related to us?
1: I you know. know. Well, Ethel probably, but but I know that from reading the Kennedy women book. I don't think that Rose like I don't think that they were big fans of the Skelts. No,
0: they weren't because they considered the Skelts yeah. kind of nouveau riche. Yeah. And very and Bobby Gosh, was after no, them. Yeah. And and
1: Rose Kennedy yes. was kind of snobbish, so but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like he probably would be better off himself and psychologically if he had just Well, just think if he had been convicted as a fifteen year old. First of all, whatever he been sentenced to I,
0: probably wouldn't have been as bad as Elon was. No. And he would have been out at twenty one. Probably. Especially yeah. since it was the seventies. But yeah. the yeah. family couldn't stand, I think. Even whatever was going to happen to Michael, oh. what they don't want is yeah. the taint of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think they give so much a shit about what happens to Michael. And, in fact, they blamed him for Michael Kennedy skiing oh. into that tree because of the babysitter thing. Oh, I mean, yeah. he had skiing into the tree because of the babysitter thing, but they blamed him, the babysitter. For, here, here he was having fucking sex with a 15-year-old, and they blamed Michael Skakel. For it public. Be but they public. said
1: he was, they like to ski without their helmets, right? Or yeah. that was their thing. Oh, and by the way, I, it was Bobby Kennedy's wife who killed herself. Yes. Bobby Another sad Jr. story. And he's an anti-vaxxer, too. I
0: know he
1: is. Although he says he's not.
0: Well, anyway. I just think that... Um, he's willing
1: to believe anything. I think we've saying. gone on for a long time. We have? Yes. No. Yeah. And really. So really. Poor Matt. He's, a, know, he's looking and through finance. So, so sad. Yeah. So you, so you say, <laughs> okay, so people... I, I'm assuming I was, if somebody listens to this whole thing, they'll know where to find us. On um, iTunes. On iTunes. On our
0: website, crimeandstuffonline.com. And, and, com. and you can donate. On Patreon, you can rate and review us, and that'll please rate and
1: review us on iTunes. So other
0: people can Enjoy listen us. to
1: us and enjoy <laughs> us. <laughs> Patreon's a sustaining a donation, right? so it would be and
0: and we have once some a
1: month or whatever. Neat stuff.
0: Believe it or not, because I know I've been talking for a long time, there's some stuff I left out, and I strongly urge people to read one of those books: Conviction by Len Levitt or Greentown by Tim Dumas. They both have different information and aspects, but they both are very thorough.
1: Okay. I might read one of them yes. one of these days. And we'll be talking about something else next week. Yes, I'm doing something. I don't know what yet. Okay, so okay. we'll talk to you.
0: see you guys then. Okay. Bye. Bye. Are we talking Mrs. Fryover here? <laughs> We're ta-
1: we may be talking um uh, <laughs> Hilliard. Uh, uh, we may be talking of uh, my uh, one of my favorite teachers Mr. of all Hilliard? Time, Louis Hilliard. yeah, Louie Hilliard. What was that well, short was a story? Church, burning a barn, barn would just be a barn would be either animals burning. or something. A barn burning. Barn oh burning. god, that
0: ah oh, jeez, and I was an English major. That sounds oh.
1: familiar to me. I'm gonna have to look that too, up. But I wasn't an English major. It so. was a. it wasn't a Willow Cather, but it was, uh, it's it one was of. Those in people. that... You know, that collection of short stories or whatever we had in Hilliard's Mm -hmm. class was phenomenal.
0: He was great.